Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hello, my self-lovers, and welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Today, I have Dr. Alexandra H. Solomon with a PhD, who is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. She's also a licensed clinical psychology at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, a regular contributor at Psychology Today, the creator and host of Reimagining Love podcast, and the author of Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want, which released in in February of 2020, published by New Harbinger, and Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, which was also published by New Harbinger in 2017. She was featured on the Today Show, and you can visit her at dralexandrasolomon.com. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mary, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as I told you before we started recording, there's obviously so much. I mean, all of life is about our relationships. And my original questions were trying to touch on everything, being single and dating and finding a partner and getting married and divorced and getting older, like everything under the (laughs) sun was my list of questions. And then I decided to make this episode very personally motivated and dive a little bit deeper into long-term relationships in particular, especially because at this time of my life, I am about to get married and I am nervous as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, I wanted to start with something that you posted a while back and I'm an avid consumer of your content. You just have such a eloquent, beautiful way with words that always hits home. You did a post that said, some of us fall in love and some of us step into love. Mm-hmm. And that really related to me because I used to be a faller and now I'm a stepper. <laughs> so I'm wondering <laughs> if you could explain what that means. Yeah. You know, when I started my career as a psychologist, I could only reach the general public. I would teach in a classroom or have couples and individuals in my office. But if I wanted to like reach the masses, the general public, I had to raise my hand when there was like an inbound request at Northwestern for somebody who wanted to talk to, or for a journalist who wanted to talk to a psychologist. And I would always raise my hand. I'd be like, I'll do it. I'll do it. No matter the topic. I just love, I have always loved this work of translating therapy and research into things that the general public can use. And now it's so cool that we have this these social media platforms and podcasts and just ways of talking daily, right? So like every day almost I'm on Instagram putting something out there. And that post was just whatever, some little thought that flew through my head over the course of the day. Maybe it was because of a therapy session I was doing or something I was thinking about in terms of my own marriage. I thought, boy, some of us fall in love, you know, and we really, we love that like out of control, butterflies in the stomach. We love that feeling. And we as a culture certainly chase that feeling of like, it's not real unless you're out of control, falling in love. But there's a lot of us, myself included, who step into love. You know, I stepped into love with my my husband of almost 23 years. 
I love him. I'm attracted to him. I love our connection, but I don't know that I ever really fell like in an out of control way. I stepped slowly and carefully into that relationship. And I think for some of us, it is just how we're wired. And for some of us, it's a reflection of life beating us up a little bit, earlier painful experiences that lead us to value control and diligence and thoughtfulness. And we just need to go slowly. So I'm curious for you, Mary, did you become a stepper or were you born a stepper? Do you think? I definitely became a stepper. I'm a very dramatic faller. And my fiance now, I definitely felt really hard for him. And I'm very grateful because we have a 12-year age gap. And I'm very grateful that he took a little over three years to propose. And I know that's not like that long, but Mm -hmm. it's longer than some, I suppose, and especially longer than people in our Jewish community are used to. So I asked him, like, why did you wait this long? And he was like, I wanted to make sure to give you time and space because the age thing usually isn't anything on our mind or anything we think about. But he was conscious enough and respectful of that, that like, I just, I don't know. I didn't explicitly say that I needed more time and space, but I also like in retrospect really appreciate that after falling really hard and moving in together really quickly, everything else has been pretty slow. And the stepper related to me in particularly now because we decided to split up our wedding into many steps. (laughs) And because, (laughs) yeah, as somebody who's had a terrible experience with marriage and divorce vicariously through my parents and not just once and not just twice, but three times and four times, I'm excited that we're doing a Jewish wedding this year and then a celebration next year and getting legally married a little after that. Like everything being split up, I didn't realize how much it was helping me stay stable. Oh, fascinating. Yep. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until I read your post. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do sort of like idealize these big sweeping transformations that happen in a moment. But when we think about how human development works, when you think about like how a baby goes from like crawling to walking, it's not like they just like crawl and then stand up and walk. There's like a lot of oscillation, we call it, like kind of back and forth, like a kind of a walk and then a fall and then a kind of a crawl that goes into a walk. So it's interesting that when we mark these relationship milestones, we do tend to put them in these like very dramatic kind of like one day or one ceremony events. And it's interesting that the two of you are really intentionally stepping. You're stepping bit by bit into marriage, like moving from partners to fiancés to spouses in a little bit of a kind of step-by-step way that probably sounds like for you is just helping your soul, helping your nervous system kind of go bit by bit, which is probably wise. I mean, that was my dissertation research way back in the day when I was in graduate school. I researched couples who were newly married, like within three years of getting married, and interviewed them and gathered the story of their transition to marriage. And there was an awful lot of post-wedding like hangover, like emotional hangover, like Mm. a lot of disappointment and confusion of like, I thought marriage was going to feel somehow different than that. I think that ends up being the consequence of when you make one day so freaking dramatic, how do you not afterwards feel confused by the fact that there's not enormous transformation internally and relationally? You know, like when you give so much power to one day, 
there's that much space for disappointment to creep in. I suspect the two of you are not going to have that kind of shock or hangover because you're going nice and slow. Exactly. And it was definitely a lot of pressure to think about this one big day. And my therapist likes to highlight high highs can often lead to low lows. And (laughs) one thing that I unfortunately had to learn the hard way, and I'm wondering how, like, what your take on this is as a psychologist. But I read something or I saw something that said, like, if you're feeling like a lot of passion and love and chemicals in the brain and it's like overwhelming, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true love. It could also be like an anxious attachment or like, I forgot how it was phrased. Trauma bond, probably. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Guarantee exactly. it was trauma bond. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Is that true? And if so, I don't mean this to like discourage people from finding mad, happy, passionate love. I'm sure that is very real. And Stan and I had that 100% at the beginning, but like after three years even, and I can't imagine after over 30 years with your husband, love really is a daily choice. And it's not that exciting and it's kind of boring sometimes. <laughs> right, right, right. I was thinking about your therapist talking about high highs and low lows. And I was thinking about maybe like, I'm here for people having beautiful rituals. I love that. But rather than it being a high high, like a wedding day being like a high high, could it be like a present present where it's just like, you're so present to it. Not that it's a high because we do all that hierarchical stuff that does set us up for disappointment, but like just where on a day as beautiful as that day, rather than it being a high, it's just something you're deeply present to. And you don't necessarily put it above other days, but you just really like melt into it so that it stands as a beautiful day, but not a better day or a high, you know, but just a day that you're really present to. So honestly, I don't know what we do about the butterflies. The things I know for sure are that we as a culture place way too much emphasis on the pursuit of the butterflies or the mad, passionate stuff. And we as a culture have somehow decided that that is a better feeling than a sort of gentle, evolving, growing feeling. For a long time, what we said was, if you don't have the butterflies in the beginning, you're doomed to fail. Well, now there's almost a way where the collective has swung to the opposite extreme, where now what I hear people saying is that the butterflies indicate trauma bonding. And the reason you feel butterflies is this person, you know, like whatever, holds characteristics like your attachment figures, and they're going to wound you in the same way as your attachment figures. And you're drawn to them because it's the wounded party that's drawn to them. Well, I don't know that that is necessarily any more true than the other thing was. But the thing that I know is that love evolves over time. It is an incredibly alive and dynamic thing. And that we get ourselves into trouble when we expect year five of a relationship to feel exactly the same as year one. It just, it can't. Or month six to feel like month one. It can't. And so there's going to be some settling. There's going to be some boredom. There's going to be a need to practice love as a verb, practice appreciation, hold awareness of the energy that you are bringing in. I think so often we get hyper-focused on our partner seems withdrawn or they seem emotionally unavailable or they seem distracted or da-da-da. And we maybe are less aware of how we ourselves are coming across. 
I know that I try to practice that check-in. Like, what is it like for my husband to be with me right now? Like, what might my energy feel like to him? And sometimes if I'm feeling super brave, I'll ask him that, you know, like, how am I coming across to you now? Or what's it like to spend time with me right now? That's really where the action is. Resisting the temptation to get hyper-focused on what the other person is doing or not doing, and to just be curious about our own part of it. Because it is, everything that happens in our relationship is a dance, a cycle, a choreography, a pattern. So we have to look at kind of how we're playing off of each other and to know that it's going to change. It's going to change over time. Yes. Is that what you would call relational self-awareness? Because you mentioned the word awareness, and I know a big part of your platform is about relational self-awareness. Could you talk more about what that means and how we can practice it, whether we're single, dating, in a relationship, married, divorce, everything in between? Yeah. Well, relational self-awareness, you're right. It's the through line in all of the work that I do. It's kind of the construct that holds my research, my clinical work, my teaching, my training, my writing, my <laughs> my own approach to my marriage and relationship with my kids kind of holds all that together, which is just the constant and ongoing, curious and compassionate study of the self, basically looking at who we are in the context of our most important relationships. It's a study of our relationship to relationships. What comes up inside of me when I'm interacting with my 17-year-old daughter, right? What part of my history is getting when I'm feeling reactive to her? Is it something that is not healed or tended to inside of me about my own adolescence? Is it feeling of a loss of control inside of me? Like it's just going back again and again to being curious about ourselves. I think especially in both our romantic relationships and in parenting, it is so easy to get focused on the other person. You know, we relate to our partner as this, like, if they would just do more of this or less of this, the relationship would be easier. We do the same thing with our kids. If my kid was a little bit more like this, this would be easier or better. And I think when we do that, we miss the opportunity to really heal and grow within these relationships. We kind of cut ourselves off from opportunities for insight and growth and healing that happens deep within ourselves and then serves the relationship. Mm. I'm going to ask you an incredibly abstract and likely difficult question only because it is so timely, but how do we, let me speak for myself, how can I practice self-awareness in my relationships or relational self-awareness without getting hypercritical or codependent, like trying to figure out how I'm acting to make somebody feel a certain way. And the reason why I ask is because literally one hour ago in my journal, I wrote August 2nd, 2022. I'm committed to journaling every day of August to see if it'll lift my spirits. Although sometimes I'm worried that being aware of my worries only makes me feel more worried. Ha ha. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is how I write to myself. I love it. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Like where is the line between self-reflection and rumination? Right? Yeah. And I feel like I'm just so, you might be able to relate to this too. I'm so deep in this work. I do so much therapy. I read all the books. I've studied all the people. I have the honor and privilege of talking to people like you and doing it not just for a living, but as a passion and 
pleasure and just curiosity. And I am marrying a very normal dude. (laughs) (laughs) A dude's dude? (laughs) A dude's dude. Like he's a car dude. He likes Uh whiskey, like as dude as it gets. (laughs) Yep. Well, I mean, this is the yin and the yang of all of it. I don't know that two Marys, you know, would be, that would get a little bit thick, right? There would be a lot of journaling and a lot of talking about the journaling and then talking about what we might journal about next. And then, you know, a lot of going meta and a lot of diving in and then a lot of reflection and then a lot of disclosure. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a loveliness to that as well, but we do need to, I think we do the work so that we can put the work away and then just be present to the experience, trusting that the journaling makes space for the presence, that we get to also just be in the moment, not always reflecting on the moment. Because I think that can become, like that can become a bit of a trap or a bit of a self-protective mechanism is to be like in analysis mode or in like going meta mode. I think there's a way in which that can be self-protective. I mean, this is the question, you know, I wrote my first book five years ago and I could not believe that like the question I got over and over and over again was like, I'm here for it. I'm here. I love relational self-awareness. I read the books. I do the journaling, da-da. But my husband, it was always, you know, a question asked by a woman about her husband or her boyfriend. He doesn't. How do I get him to do it? And the answer that I keep coming back to is, I don't know that you need to have two people who are deeply immersed in this as long as the other partner is not contemptuous of self-reflection, right? There's a world of difference between being like willing to talk about relationship dynamics, being willing to introspect and needing to, and being passionate about it, right? Like as long as your partner is willing to look at themselves be curious about the impact that their words or behavior has on you. I think that goes a long way. The thing that I worry about is when somebody, quote unquote, like doesn't believe in therapy or is contemptuous of therapy or says therapy is for crazy people or emotions are weakness. Like those are more worrisome. And those I would want the other person to kind of proceed with caution. So a, you know, a car guy who likes whiskey and doesn't necessarily write in his journal every day of August, like that's not a worry to me as long as he's not <laughs> making fun of you for doing it, as long as he's willing to engage with you in conversations. Yes. So the green flag is being open to it, like perceptive to it, not rejecting. You did a podcast episode with your husband and, you know, you hear the same thing every day, but somebody says it in such a way, well, your husband said something in such a way about how he doesn't really have like the grass is greener on the other side symptom. And it just reminded me of how important it is to really just focus on what's green on your side. Yeah. Tell me why you sighed. Do you just love him? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that episode is one that we talked about for a while and we finally got around to doing it. And it's just, it's really cool. The impact that it has had and My sigh was, yes, that is a huge thing, like letting go of the comparison, right? What he was saying was that he's not a grass is greener kind of guy. He really does focus on what he has rather than looking at all these other possibilities. I think that can be a side effect of this like 
very introspective way of living is you can always see what could be better and what could be different. And it becomes a kind of self-torture, right? Of like, if only we could, or if only you would, or if only I could, like the self-improvement sometimes becomes a road to nowhere and we miss out on the chance to just really savor what's here and bountiful and present like right now. So I think we have to be, I think those of us who are in this work and who love this work just need to be careful about that. Hey, myself lovers, before we go on with today's podcast episode, I want to make sure that you are giving yourself the gift of self-love. The Gift of Self-Love is a book I wrote to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. And it's available in stores and online worldwide. So go pick it up if you don't have it already. And if you do have it, little reminder to make sure that you are reading it and doing that work in the workbook. I poured my heart and soul into this book, compiling everything I teach at my retreats and everything we talk about on the podcast and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is this book is a combination of me sharing everything that's helped me on my self-love journey, and it's also a workbook, so you can actually write in it and put the tools into practice right away. So it's a very integrative experience, similar to what it would be like if you came to a retreat and we were doing a workshop in person. These exercises are all in one place for you. There are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body acceptance, mindset and self-talk, confidence and self-worth. So if you haven't gotten it yet, you can get it today by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. You can also search for it on Amazon or at your favorite bookstore. And please take a second to check out all the amazing reviews. At this point, the book has reached thousands of people all around the world. And these reviews are so, so special to me. They literally make me cry when I read them. And I hope that this book has the same profound impact on you. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash book and give yourself the gift of self-love. Some of the happiest people I know aren't so deep into this work. And one thing that I've always said I loved about my boyfriend is that the stuff that I spent years not just learning, but putting beautiful flowery words to and writing about and absorbing, he just naturally practices. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just comes naturally. Like he's a normal dude. And I say that with the utmost of love and respect and admiration. So, okay, green flag there. Mm-hmm. What are some mm-hmm. other green flags for potential partners? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I can get a little bit fussy about is I will talk more about relationship green flags rather than partner green flags, because I think that sometimes that becomes like a deflecting, like if someone wants to like drive me right up the wall, they will talk about how somebody checks all their boxes. And I just like it just makes me crazy because shopping for a partner is not like shopping for whatever, a cute pair of boots on Zappos, you know, and we get into <laughs> yeah. this. Dr. Bill Doherty calls it like a consumer mentality where we kind of are like, okay, what does this partner bring to the table? So I think relationship green flags are when you can experience that blend of being in the relationship and talking about the relationship. It is exhausting to have relationship talk be the bulk of what a couple is doing, right? Because it's emotionally laborious. And so I want couples to just also be able to have like the 
I think a green flag for a relationship is just being able to have like simple time together, you know, where you just really are talking about nothing, just enjoying the moment. I think that's a, a really big green flag. I think that healthiest and happiest of couples are open to feedback, even when it's like part of you kind of clenches up. Todd has learned uh, to say, and I have learned to say, like, are you available for some feedback? And every time he says it, you know, like part of me just kind of squeezes, like I squeeze my eyes together and take a deep breath and then get myself ready for the feedback, right? It's not like we have to be so excited that our partners have feedback for us, but we have to be willing to be like, okay, yes, tell me, how am I coming across? What are you needing? What needs to be tweaked here? So I think another green flag is just an ability to give and receive feedback without getting defensive or without dissolving into a puddle of shame. Mm. Dissolving in a puddle is my favorite pastime activity. (laughs) 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 So what is the question? Are you available for some feedback? Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that came naturally to you guys or like, what is it like being such a renowned psychologist and so educated in this field and married to not a therapist, in fact, a dude, a lawyer, a A dude. Yeah. Like, what is that like? I'm just curious as to what that dynamic is. Did you ever, I don't know, did you ever have fights about like, don't therapize me or whatever? I don't know. (laughs) I'm just curious. Right. It's confounded, right? Because the one who is the therapist in the marriage is also the one with the much more complicated attachment history and sort of trauma history, which is probably part of what drew me to be a therapist in the first place is I grew up in a family system that was immensely more complicated than his family system. He grew up pretty securely attached and I definitely have had to earn my secure attachment. I've had to earn every ounce of relational health that I have through lots and lots of my own therapy. So I wonder if it's the same for you. Is like it's not a coincidence that I'm somebody who has spent so much time learning this stuff. Like I think I'm naturally nerdy, so I would have been drawn to work where I was constantly challenged and never had it all figured out and had to keep learning. But this field of relational health, it captivates my attention because it also allows me to heal the little girl that I once was, you know, who felt pretty chronically overwhelmed and out of control and helpless in my family of origin. So I think those things are tricky because yes, I'm the one in our marriage who has more language, more emotional and psychological sophistication, but I'm also the one who is more easily triggered and has to do much more work around digging myself out of the puddle of shame or reducing my amount of defensiveness. Like That all is my ongoing personal work in a way that it just really isn't for Todd. He lives with a lot more (laughs) simplicity than I do. So we don't really have that thing of like, he says, stop therapizing me. It's more, he's like, can you please just take a little break and go regulate yourself? (laughs) Yeah. You know, or like, as he spoke about in the podcast, or as we call it, the Toddcast, he has moments of confusion of like, how can she have this all figured out in the world and then struggle at home. And I I refuse to feel ashamed of that or like that somehow indicates that I'm an imposter and he, that's not how he's meaning it. It's just that it is, it's ongoing work for me. And I do the work and I'm happy to do the work and my kids and my husband are the beneficiaries of the work. It is not 
naturally, I still struggle with getting activated and feeling ashamed, especially when I'm stretched thin with working hard and having lots of demands on me. Like I know that when I'm taking better care of myself and I have a more reasonable set of expectations for myself, I have more bandwidth for the people around me. Mm. Alexander, that is so validating to me personally, because that question of, well, more of a rhetorical question, like how can you do all these things for other people and have it so figured out and then at home just crumble sometimes and really struggle to to figure it out for yourself. That's definitely a conversation, a heated conversation we've had. And I, mm. just your words of being like, I refuse to be ashamed of that because there's obviously some kind of like correlation or something that draws us. And I'm sure the people listening to this podcast can really relate to being interested in this, having it be like not just a professional pursuit, but a very personal attachment to figuring it out within ourselves. And I think a branch of that is often feeling like, I don't mean to project this onto your relationship, but for somebody who is feeling like they might be carrying on the emotional burden of their relationship. Like one thing I tell Stan, I'm like, I'm the one that has to initiate the difficult conversations. I'm the one that is always like, can we please take some time to talk? I'm the one that's like, choosing my words carefully and trying to figure this out for us. And he's the one that sleeps at night like a dead rock. And <laughs> I, you know, I, it's tiresome. And I've, I've heard that from my, from my listeners, from the people who come to my retreats. A lot of people are in relationships with kind of like the calm to their storm. And I think it's the most beautiful dynamic. So how can the storm channel the calm at times? And what advice do you have for that? Hmm. Well, the way that Todd and I navigate that, because the way that it goes for us is I will get, I'll get kind of victimy around that. Like I'm the one that keeps an eye on how all the dynamics in our house are going. I'm the one, you know, I'll get like a little bit victimy. And when I start to slip into that, his best strategy is just to validate it and be like, yes, <laughs> you know, he'll be like, you're the wife and the mom sort of like play the gender card because we have had like, it's in our family system. It is legit. Like Todd has been the breadwinner. I've been the primary caregiver. So we have chosen these roles and taken on these roles and they have worked really well for us. And I'm the therapist. So it does mean that that kind of like emotional pulse of the marriage and of the family system has fallen to me. And so when I start to get victimy about it, he just validates it and reminds me that actually that is my role. Every relationship has roles. And it's not that he's checked out, but it's just that I am frequently a half step ahead. And so that is just what's true and real. And it also works because I don't, it's not like I'm not going to do that. Like I'm not going to like hand over that job to Todd because then I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know how to hand over that job. Right. So I can't be a victim of a thing that I wouldn't let go of if he tried to make me, if he was like, no, no, that's fine. I'll be the emotional thermostat. I'd be like, hell freaking no, you're not. I'm a therapist. <laughs> Have you listened to my podcast? Like I know my shit. So I think that's the double-edged sword, right? I think we can start to feel victimy or overburdened. But then it's also remembering that this is just like for you to not be the one, like you're not going to not do that with Stan. 
you're not going to notice things and keep quiet about them. And you are going to be a half step ahead. And I have every confidence if you and Stan widen out the lens, there'd be domains in the relationship where Stan would say, hey, Mary, I tend to be a half step ahead of you on this, or I'm the one who tends to notice this or takes more responsibility for this. So I think it's just as easy for us to get victimy about the things that yes. are. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is like, kind of being like, would I accept the opposite? Like, you know, if they were to offer, like, let me do all these things, right? <laughs> would, would you be like, okay, great. Right. If Stan um, was like, I'll be the emotional barometer of our relationship. How would you respond to that? I'd be like, fuck no, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, what makes this difficult, not to like beat a dead horse, but one thing my girlfriend and I nailed over dinner with our partners She's been married for almost 10 years and they have a two-year-old. And one thing we really put words on is this difficult side that, yes, he definitely takes on other things. Like he, He's like, I'm the one that does all the grocery shopping. I'm the one that takes care of the house. Like I can get pretty oblivious about things that need to be done, done, like practically done. And one thing we put words on is like, it's so easy to quantify a lot of the stuff they do, like they make this amount of money, they do this, uh, that, and this. And oftentimes, particularly in a heteronormative relationship, there is like that gender experience, which I'm sure you know all too well, not just through your education, but just also being married to a man. And it's just difficult to quantify. It's more like qualified, I guess, the stuff that we quote unquote do. A lot of it we don't do. A lot of it we think about. And with my best friend, she's a new mom. And she's like, he just will never understand what it's like to constantly be thinking about what am I going to feed the baby? When am I going to put her sleep down? Planning the whole schedule, the whole day, the life, the travel plans, everything. And that's what I mean by like, I guess the mental and emotional burden that, yeah. So like green flag is if they validate it, understand it, are grateful yes. for it. Yes. What if they just like, can't grasp it, can't get it? just because they're limited by their own experience. I think, you know, what's tricky is that when I go victim or when your friend is going victim around, like he just doesn't get it. What's being missed there is there's a way in which what she's wanting and needing and frankly deserving is validation and recognition for what she's doing. So what I would wonder is what might happen if she could go to her partner directly and just say, I would just love for you to shine on me. Like, just talk me through, like, what a kick-ass mom I am. And just, like, notice, like, notice and say, because that is for sure, we've yet to get this right in our culture, but young moms feel freaking invisible and exhausted, and we don't have really robust social networks. So oftentimes, young moms feel really alone in what they're doing it's going to mean the most coming from the partner for the partner to be like, you are killing it. I'm so proud of you. This baby is so lucky. Like just make an observation, make a celebration because what happens like without her getting that steady stream of assurance and validation, it comes out sideways, right? As a complaint, but embedded in her complaint is like, can you just please notice me? Because your, your feedback and your warmth and your validation of me means the most. So I wonder if, if I was sitting with your really good girlfriend and her husband, that's probably the direction I'd want to be going if it was couples therapy. I would want to be kind of figuring out from him, 
how he can get ahead of it. Because what I know to be true from 20 plus years of sitting with husbands is just about the most exquisitely painful experience a husband can have is feeling like his wife is disappointed in him and feeling like he's coming up short. Like that is the thing that I feel like every husband I sit with is scanning the couple's therapy session, scanning his wife's face for evidence that he is a disappointment. And so by the time she says to him, you don't notice the things I do around here, rather than him hearing, ah, this is an opportunity for me to validate. All he hears is I am disappointed in you. And then that kicks him into defensive mode or shame mode. And then once that happens, there's no way in hell she's going to get the validation and affirmation that she deeply, deeply needs and deserves. That is so sad. Would you say that's a a default for a lot of the men that you see? Yes. Yes. It sucks. It freaking sucks. And it's what I spend a ton of time and energy on is helping wives ask more clearly for what they need because what they need is so incredibly legit and it improves the marriage, like for her to ask for validation and get validation, like you know, it's a win-win. But yes, oftentimes all he's doing is scanning and defending and protecting himself from the fear of being a disappointment. Mm -hmm. So then her needs don't get met because he's just in self-protective mode because the way we socialize boys and men, it's kind of opposite what the ways of being that make for a really good husband, a really good boyfriend. Yeah. So it's a lot of men have to do a lot of unlearning, generally speaking. The patriarchy harms us all. So what I'm hearing you say is is to work on moving from like a complaint to a request. I also have heard not to continue the generalizations, but a lot of men are doers. And so if they feel like there's something they can do like right here, right now, that feels a little bit maybe more empowering to them. And the do is very often just that. Tell your wife what a freaking badass she is. <laughs> That's a do. That counts as a do, right? Like, yeah. why can't we count that as a, it's not like change a diaper, but it's offer affirmation, validation, witnessing, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's a do. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. So, so powerful, so important, lifelong learning experience. And speaking of lifelong, long-term things, I'm like, how do I ask that? Alexandra, pour into me. What's your advice? How do we make this last? I mean, I'm already proud of myself for three and a half years. I really never thought I would be here and going into marriage pretty young and all of that. How have you been with Todd for over 30 years? Like, we have a joke in Russian. (laughs) My family's Russian. And the joke that well, ironically speaking, my divorced parents like to tell me is <laughs> a couple who's been married like, you know, 50, 60 years are asked, you've been together so long, don't you ever want to get divorced? And the wife answers, divorce? No. Kill? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's something that I, I like, it, it gives, is it levity or brevity? Sorry, my yes. Right. Levity, levity yeah. to my fear. And that is like just knowing that it's okay to have disagreements. It's okay to want to strangle him sometimes. But like that lifelong commitment, I actually am really excited about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really, um, you know, I'm I'm here for people partnering in all the ways that feel good to them. 
I think there's a way in which marriage, it's, it's a complicated institution, right? A lot of people, especially young people, have complicated relationships with the institution of marriage because it has been exclusionary, right? It has kept queer people out for a long, long time because it has been tied up with sexual monogamy and not everybody is sure that sexual monogamy is going to be for them, you know? So I try to figure out this way of how to be pro-marriage while being pro all the ways that people want to love and be loved. But my gosh, I mean, I know that for me, the container of our marriage, which is in part about the legal agreement, but also just in part about our history, it's a steadying force in my life while also place a lot of freedom. Like I think that's how that's how I've stayed in this marriage for as long as I have, is that I have felt really free to be myself. Todd has has celebrated me shining my light in the world in, in ways that feel good to me. So I think that's really huge is like just knowing that you are marrying your partner at time one, but you're going to get married again and again and again to all the versions of themselves. So, and when your partner starts to step into something new, whether it's a new workout routine or a new job or a new interest of theirs, honoring that maybe that part of you feels scared, like, wait, if you get super fit, are you still going to love me? Or wait, if you get this promotion at work, are you going to still love me? I think there can be some fear that comes along with every evolution of our partner, but can we also hold on to like, the excitement, like that fear and excitement and excitement about like, oh my God, I get to be the one who's next to you while you step into this new cool thing. Because that's the only thing we know for sure is that we're going to keep evolving and changing and growing. And so then the marriage has to and gets to keep evolving and changing and growing. I love that. I also love how you say like, one thing I know for sure, or what I do know is, <laughs> I love that way of speech. Is that an Oprah thing? Isn't that the title of her book? <gasps> what I know for sure. Yeah, what I know for sure. That's true. I'm like, no wonder <laughs> I love that phrase. Right. right. Oh my God. I've been, I've been a fan of Oprah since I was a college student. She's been a, yeah, a huge piece of my heart for a lot of years. Yeah, for a lot of people, extraordinary, extraordinary woman. On that note, the last question that I want to ask you is, about this sentence that is often thought and sometimes uttered, particularly in long-term relationships when you feel like you're kind of going through the roommate phase, which I know is so common and so under-talked about, or when you know you just kind of get into the flow, the swing of things, and the romance may have died down or whatever it may be. You posted about this, and I would love for you to speak more into it. This sentence of, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. What is your take on this? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I've thought it myself in other relationships, and I loved your, it was almost like a hot take. So let's hear it. Mm. Well, yeah, it was such a hot take that I had to end up doing a whole podcast episode about it. I don't know which episode number it is, but people can easily find it in the Reimagining Love archive. Yeah, I love you, but I'm not in love with you is basically the bottom line is very often that's something that we say, we like sort of plop it down at the feet of our partner. Like, here's a problem I have, and now I'm going to put it at your feet and you have to figure out what to do about it versus 
getting really curious about that. Like, what does it mean for me? What's going on either inside of me or what's going on between us that I'm feeling, I'm feeling what? And then also getting really clear on what am I feeling? I'm feeling disengaged. I'm struggling with attraction. I'm struggling with arousal. I'm struggling with boredom. Like, what is the feeling, right? Because it's sort of, it's presented. It's like this kind of catchy phrase where when somebody says that in my therapy office, for example, I'm like, okay, you've just told me nothing. Like, let's unpack the 14 layers that might be going on there. One thing that it oftentimes means is my erotic desire has shifted from spontaneous to responsive. So very often early in a relationship, we have lots of spontaneous desire, meaning that I see my partner, I think having sex with my partner would be awesome. So let's go for it. The desire to be sexual with a partner is spontaneous. It's not necessarily cued by anything in particular besides just the fact that I want my partner. It is common for desire, especially in a longer term sexually monogamous relationship, to shift from spontaneous towards responsive. And responsive is, I wasn't thinking about sex, but you want to, and I'm pretty sure it's going to feel good if we do. So let's go for it. Or I wasn't thinking about sex, but it's Saturday night. And we have said that it's really important for us to be sexual every single week. And Saturday night is a good night. So let's go for it. Or I wasn't thinking about sex, but we watched this show and there was kind of a steamy scene. So now I could do it where it's kind of cute. It's in response to something. So sometimes I love you, but I'm not in love with you is just basically a way of saying something has shifted in my erotic desire, in my libido, and it confuses me and it scares me. And so sometimes what's needed is just education and normalization that sexual desire changes and that long-term couples need to be doing things to actively cultivate sexual happiness and satisfaction and freedom. Sometimes so far as even scheduling sex, like just saying it's happening Thursday night at eight, I'm sending you a calendar invite. It's going down. <laughs> and that's not unromantic. In fact, it's like it shows like this is how much it matters that we have got to prioritize us and our bodies and our pleasure and our play. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Calendar Invites, and I know a lot of people think that it's unsexy, but to me, it's like really sexy. Like I'm looking at it on the calendar throughout my week. I have the little calendar widget on my phone. It's just there. It. I guess it also depends on how you look at it. Totally. Certain things like that. So what I'm hearing you say is that when somebody says, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, it's often somehow related to this like sexual erotic desire. And like full circle back to what you said at the beginning, a lot of what we know about love is passionate, fiery, nonstop fucking. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. when that dies down or we're not feeling it, we instantly turn to, well, I must not be in love with this person. Yes, exactly. And I love the word you use, like plop. We just plop these pretty hurtful things, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? <laughs> you're right. What are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely do not want people plopping that at their partner's feet because it's not your partner's responsibility. I think we can say, I am feeling disconnected or I'm feeling concerned about the quality of our sexual connection these days, or I'm feeling 
Like it's hard to get your attention. Can we talk about it, right? That invitation to say, come sit next to me and look at this problem. Look at this feeling because the feeling lives in me, but I think it maybe has some important data for both of us. Mm, I love that. Thank you for that actionable script. Dr. Alexandra, thank you so much for being on this show. I'm wondering where our listeners can find you, work with you. I mean, I've been sharing your content, it feels like, for years. So hopefully they're already following you. But where can we get in touch? Yeah. Well, the website is a great place to start, which is dralexandrasolomon.com. And there they can find a blog and links to social media, links to the podcast, links to books and e-courses and upcoming events, all of the things. So that's a great place to go, just dralexandrasolomon.com. Cool. I will put that in the description. You have such a beautiful name, by the way, and the, the doctor gives it an extra oh. syllable, an extra nice ring. So <laughs> thank you again for serving me so personally and so deeply and recording this conversation for our audience. It's meant the world and is definitely incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for having me on. One last thing before we farewell. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify, depending on where you're listening. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words just mean the absolute world to me. Just search the show on Apple, scroll all the way down to where you'll see a place to leave a review. And if you're listening on Spotify, on the show's homepage, you'll see like a star. And when you click on that star, it'll let you send in your reading. Thank you so much for helping me spread the gift of self-love. And speaking of the gift of self-love, make sure you pick up my book, which is available in stores and online worldwide. Just go to maryscupoftea.com book, and you'll find all the links to order the gift of self-love. I love you all so much, and I will talk to you next time. Bye!